I'm gonna show you how great I am. This was our fighting power. I just wanna say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. If you Google who is the richest man of all time, Mansa Musa's name is likely to pop up. He's remarkable for many reasons, but I think the most interesting reason is that he's the only person that I know of, at least through history, who had what I would describe as limitless amounts of money. If you've ever wondered what it would be like to just be able to conjure money out of thin air, Mansa Musa is kind of the guy that can answer the question for you. Um, you think about the other extremely rich people of all time. You think about someone like Jeff Bezos today. $170 billion is what he's worth last time I checked. And, um, you know, it would be extremely difficult for, for Jeff Bezos to spend all his money, even if he tried. But you can't say it's limitless because that's not using very much imagination. I mean, think if, if he tried to exert anything like the kind of political or military control that, that men of his wealth did in the past. You know, Jeff Bezos would probably have a tough time spending down all his money if he were trying to buy cars and, and planes and houses. Um, but if he were trying to buy kingdoms and, and land and, and the things that Julius Caesar or Charlemagne was buying with his money, he would find himself out of money pretty quick. But not Mansa Musa. Uh, this is a guy who, who really just had so much money that the only things he didn't have were things that he could not buy. So he's just sort of on a different level when it comes to that wealth. Um, that, that's why people make the case for him as the richest man of all time. So who was this guy and how did he become so rich? Uh, let's find out. But first, a word from our sponsors. This episode of How to Take Over the World is brought to you by Taft. As you study the lives of these great historical figures, you start to pick up on little similarities. Some of them are really obvious, like that these are all very intelligent and hardworking people, but other similarities seem rather odd. And one of those odd similarities is the way they dress. They all seem to adopt the prevailing fashion, but with just a little bit of flair to make them stand out from the crowd. Julius Caesar had his fringe on his toga, Alexander the Great wore Medusa on his breastplate, and of course Steve Jobs wore his famous mock neck shirt. Well, I reached out to Taft to be a sponsor of today's show because they fit into that tradition perfectly. Taft is a men's footwear brand that specializes in boots and shoes. They take shoes with a very classic and timeless look and mix up the design just a little bit and give their shoes enough flair to stand out in a really cool way. All their boots and shoes are handcrafted in Europe. They're incredibly well-made. They're super comfortable. They last forever and you'll look great. I wear my Taft boots all the time and they look and feel incredible. So head over to taftclothing.com and use the code HOWTO10 for 10% off your order of any fully priced boot, shoe, or sneaker. Again, you'll really love them. Wear the shoes that Caesar or Alexander the Great would wear if they were alive. Go to taftclothing.com and use code HOWTO10. The Empire of Mali was founded in the year 1235 in Western Africa by a man named Sundiata Keita. The records are a little bit shaky about the early days of the empire. It wasn't until the 1300s that the world at large started to understand the region and we started to get reliable documentation and histories. But we do know that Sundiata Keita was a warrior prince who led the battle to free the Mali people from the rule of the ancient Ghanaian empire. And as he did so, he expanded the power and territory of the Mali empire 
and crucially, managed to secure access to the trans-Saharan trade routes. And those trade routes were everything. They were what connected sub-Saharan Africa to the rest of the world. By the time Mansa Musa took over, the empire covered about 500,000 square miles of West Africa, extending all the way to the coast. They were able to tax trade going in and out of the region and become very wealthy as a result. The three big commodities of that day were gold, which was used as currency, obviously, copper, which was used in bronze and in jewelry and had many different functions, and salt, which was used for preserving and enhancing the taste of food. Luckily for the Mali Empire, they had all three of these things in great abundance. The empire was the home of, in particular, three massive gold mines and, and big salt mines too. Um, the Mali Empire had access to a mine called Tagasa, and this was this crazy place. Nobody lived in the area except for the people who worked the mines. And there was like nothing in the area. So they ate imported dates and dried camel meat. And the buildings were literally constructed out of big slabs of salt that they were mining because that's, that's all there was in the area. The salt would be dug up and cut into these really thick slabs and then strapped to a camel and, and sold for a huge markup. So between the salt mines and the gold mines, the rulers of the Mali Empire had a license to print money and every incentive to continue doing so. In fact, the world of the Mediterranean was short on gold at the time, so there was constant demand for it, and uh, obviously these guys were happy to provide it. Musa's predecessor as the king of Mali was a man by the name of Abu Bakr, and despite his vast wealth, Abu Bakr was not particularly interested in the affairs of the empire or even in the world of West Africa. Listen to Mansa Musa, as quoted by Arab historian Al-Umari, describe Abu Bakr and, and what he did. Mansa Musa said, quote, the ruler who preceded me did not believe that it was impossible to reach the extremity of the ocean that encircles the earth, meaning the Atlantic Ocean, and wanted to reach that end and obstinately persisted in the design. So he equipped 200 boats full of men, many others full of gold, water, and victuals sufficient enough for several years, and ordered the chief admiral not to return until they had reached the extremity of the ocean, or if they had exhausted the provisions and the water. They set out. Their absence extended over a long period, and at last only one boat returned. On our questioning, the captain said, Prince, we have navigated for a long time until we saw in the midst of the ocean as if a big river was flowing violently. My boat was the last one. Others were ahead of me. As soon as any of them reached this place, it drowned in the whirlpool and never came out. I sailed backwards to escape this current. But the Sultan would not believe him. He ordered 2,000 boats to be equipped for him and his men and 1,000 more for water and victuals. Then he conferred on me the regency during his absence and departed with his men on the ocean trip, never return, never to return, nor to give a sign of life. So basically, the predecessor to Mansa Musa hops on this boat and says, all right, you hold things down while I'm gone, and disappears over the horizon, never to be seen again. I love conspiracy theories, and there are some good ones that he actually did reach the Americas, and to be fair, uh, there actually are reports that natives of some Caribbean islands had legends of black men from the south who arrived with massive amounts of copper and gold. And I find that, you know, somewhat compelling. But the academic consensus is that they did not, in fact, ever arrive at the Americas for the simple reason that there has never been any concrete evidence found of any African artifacts in the New World before the Columbian Exchange. So regardless of whether he actually reached the New World or not, it is certain that he never returned to West Africa. And when everyone back in Mali hadn't heard from Abu Bakr in a year, Musa became the official Mansa, 
or king of the Mali Empire. So when we say Mansa Musa, that literally just means King Musa. And Musa was not unprepared to become king. He had been biding his time, waiting for it, and when that moment finally arrived, he was ready to act. So what did Mansa Musa do with his vast new empire? With an army numbering around 100,000 men, including an armored cavalry corps of 10,000 horses, and using his talented general, Saren Mandian, Mansa Musa was able to extend and maintain Mali's vast empire. He wrestled control of the cities of Timbuktu and Gao, which were rich in salt and gold, and this gave him control over even more important trade routes between the Mediterranean and West African coast. By the end of his reign, Musa had doubled the empire's territory, making it second in size only to that of the Mongol Empire at the time. Never again would the Mali Empire be as vast as it was during Mansa Musa's reign. Musa was about much more than just expanding his territory, though. He had to manage an extremely diverse empire with people of all different backgrounds, cultures, and religious beliefs. As a devout Muslim, he was initially inclined to impose Islam as the official religion, but listened to his people and actually implemented a quite progressive religious tolerance as compared to other empires at the time. But imagine you're Mansa Musa, you're a Muslim with an awareness of the Islamic world, but great difficulty in accessing it. You've basically expanded your empire to the greatest extent that is possible to reach given the technology at the time, because once you get to a certain distance, you hit the Sahara Desert. And I think sometimes people don't understand what a great barrier the Sahara Desert is. First of all, everyone knows, obviously, it's extremely hot and dry. Temperatures can get up into the 120s degrees Fahrenheit, and most of it receives less than an inch of rain per year. Oases are very rare, and it's extremely inhospitable to life. If you got dropped off in the Sahara Desert, you would likely survive a couple days at most. But what I think sometimes people don't grasp about the Sahara Desert is just how big it is. It's huge. It contains three and a half million square miles of desert. It's the largest hot desert in the world. And um, I know that's a little difficult to conceptualize, three and a half million square miles. But think of it like this. The city of Tunis is on the North African coast. So it's on the continent of Africa, uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. But to give you an idea of how big the Sahara Desert is, Tunis is closer to Stockholm, Sweden, than it is to the Ghanaian coast. So Cairo, the city in Egypt, uh, was at the time the center of the Islamic world. And Cairo, again, technically on the continent of Africa, is closer to Copenhagen, London, Moscow, uh, even to India than it is to Timbuktu, uh, or, or in other words, to Mali, where Mansa Musa was. There's just no barrier in the world quite like it. It's this enormous desert, and it kept sub-Saharan Africa basically completely isolated from the Mediterranean world and beyond for tens of thousands of years. By the time Mansa Musa came around, there were trade routes going over the Sahara, but it was a months-long journey through the desert, so obviously only non-perishable goods could be transported, and it really limited contact still between the two areas. So if you're a wealthy ambitious young ruler, how do you continue to grow your empire and your influence beyond this vast desert? Well, what Mansa Musa decided to do would make him famous for generations. He decided to take the Hajj. The Hajj is a trip to the holy city of Mecca that every Muslim is expected to make at least once in their lifetime. And Mansa Musa decides to make this Hajj in spectacular fashion. And this is one of those moments where just reading about it, I kind of get lost 
in the movie in my head of what's going on. Imagine you're living in the 1300s in Cairo, Egypt. It's a vibrant city. It's kind of, you know, at the center of the world. When you think about all these European and Middle Eastern and Asian empires, they sort of all come together in Cairo. So it's very worldly, very international. Uh, it's the cultural capital of the Islamic world with stunning artistic and architectural achievements, uh, incredible buildings, you know, all the greatest poets, all the greatest scholars, all, you know, everything is going on in Cairo. Living in Cairo back then is, uh, is a little bit like living in New York City today, only more so, right? And then one day, a rumor of a city moving through the desert spreads throughout Cairo. People talk of this, you know, golden moving city. After much anticipation, after weeks of hearing about it, it finally arrives. And what you see is even better than what you had been hearing. It's 60,000 people in total. All the newcomers are clad in expensive silks and gold embroidery, from the royal officials to the soldiers, to the entertainers and the merchants, even the slaves are wearing this incredible gold garb. And men on horses are waving gold banners. Even the 500 slaves have these six-pound staffs of gold. Um, this thing is so overladen with gold, they, they're putting it on everything. They don't even know what to do with it. Each camel, there are 100 camels that are laden with 300 pounds of pure gold. So literally gold is just flowing from this caravan, and they're walking through the city, and they're just throwing it. <laughs> they, they're handing it out left and right, making charitable donations, giving it as gifts, and at the helm of this whole extravagant procession is a man riding on a stallion, donning a crown made of pure gold. If you've seen the Disney movie Aladdin, it's a lot like when Aladdin wishes to be Prince Ali. And as they march through the street, Mansa Musa and his royal associates are looking regal and dignified as they give out all this gold. And uh, it makes obviously a huge splash and creates this aura of mystique around this foreign king. Mansa Musa. And I say mystique, and, and that's because, you know, this empire of Mali was not well known to the rest of the world. Like I said, even some places close as Cairo, already on the continent of Africa, was completely separated from Mali. Um, there was very little cultural contact between the two. And so it's really this mysterious man. Um, this Hajj was the event that literally put Mali on the map. Years later, a world map called the Catalan Atlas, which was commissioned by King Charles V in 1375, included the first detailed map of West Africa. And in it lies a drawing of Mansa Musa. He's sitting on a throne. He's got a gold ball in one hand and a golden staff in the other. And uh, if you Google Mansa Musa, it's likely the first image you'll see. But before this, you know, West Africa was, was not really on the maps, certainly not in any detail. And after this, it was because he made such a stir. Um, and it wasn't necessarily all a positive stir. The entourage ended up giving out so much gold and spending so much in the markets that the value of gold in Cairo crashed by 20%. And it wasn't just Cairo. They accidentally devastated economies all along their path. Some estimate that this led to approximately a billion and a half dollars in economic losses throughout the Middle East. And it took a decade to fully recover from this massive depreciation in the price of gold. Musa made such an impact on the Egyptians that 12 years later, when Syrian historian and writer Al-Umari visited Cairo, he noted that people were still raving about him and his extravagant visit. And so you see why people call him the richest person of all time. You know, he's spending so much money that it's devastating economies, and it's still not putting a dent in what he has. 
Rudolph Butch Ware, a West African history professor at UC Santa Barbara, put it this way. He said, quote, contemporary accounts of Musa's wealth are so breathless that it's almost impossible to get a sense of just how wealthy and powerful he truly was. Ware said, imagine as much gold as you think a human being could possess and double it. That's what all the accounts are trying to communicate. But Musa didn't just inspire others by his vast displays of wealth. He was in turn inspired by what he saw on his journey. He was impressed by the universities and the architecture and the schools, the libraries that he saw in Cairo, and devoted much of his reign to making his empire a robust center of scholarship. He picked up several poets, scholars, artists, and architects from all around the Middle East and brought them back to the empire's prized jewel, the city of Timbuktu. Obviously, his, uh, his vast wealth gave them plenty of motivation to relocate. And if you heard of the city of Timbuktu, uh, it's usually as referring to a place that is extremely remote and far away. You know, where does Susie live? Oh, she lives out in Timbuktu, uh, that sort of thing. In reality, Timbuktu became a legendary city because of Mansa Musa. In fact, as late as the 18th century, European explorers were still venturing through the inhospitable Sahara to find this golden city in the desert. You know, it was kind of the El Dorado uh, for a time that people thought it was this golden city that if they discovered it would have these vast treasures. Musa set about turning Timbuktu into a great urban center of learning, religion, commerce, like he had seen in Cairo. He commissioned incredible mosques, schools, and libraries to be built. One of those magnificent mosques still stands to this day, over 600 years later. And he sent scholars out to cities all over the world to learn new things and bring them back for the people of Timbuktu to study. Timbuktu soon became an educational hub with people traveling from around the world to study at what would become known as the Sankor University. He encouraged literacy and scientific advancement, and one of the libraries housed hundreds of thousands of books and manuscripts. You know, Mansa Musa really did manage to turn Timbuktu into a world-class city. Unfortunately, much of that history has been destroyed in recent years due to tribal conflicts and terrorist occupation in the area. But at the time, it was a great center of religion, education, art, culture, and commerce. So what do we make of the story of Mansa Musa? What can we learn from it? It's easy to be cynical and say, you know, the lesson to be drawn from the life of Mansa Musa is be born on top of the world's largest gold mines. And uh, sure, whatever. I guess there's some truth to that. But at the same time, think about this. His predecessors and his successors both had access to these same salt and gold mines, and yet no one has really ever heard of them. It's true. His wealth was mostly a function of his position of birth, combined with some level, obviously, of strong leadership and enterprising spirit. But if his wealth can largely be explained as a matter of inheritance, what he did to Timbuktu cannot be explained that way. He could have sailed off into the distance like Abu Bakr, or he could have virtually done nothing with his wealth, as many of his successors did, but instead he had a vision for this amazing city in the desert. And so I think that's one crucial lesson from the life of Mansa Musa is vision. Uh, the other important thing to point out was how he realized this vision, how he did it. Mansa Musa was able to realize his vision by turning gold into actual influence. And the way he did that was through spectacle. If he had just tried to hire, you know, the, the Islamic world's great poets from Cairo and Baghdad and Damascus to come to Timbuktu, they probably would have scoffed and said, you know, where? The middle of the desert, you know, someplace beyond the Sahara we've never heard of? Yeah, right. But after the spectacle that he created on the Hajj, when everyone saw this unbelievably wealthy caravan, 
these sorts of people were intrigued and were much more willing to come to Timbuktu and see what was going on. I had the chance to chat with a best-selling author the other week. And I mean, like really best-selling. He put out one of the top-selling books in the world last year as a first-time author. And I was asking him to what he attributed his success. And he said, you know, I, I think I wrote a great book, obviously. But one of the biggest things in making it this mega bestseller was the rollout. We had this huge rollout plan and I was everywhere in the media, did, took every interview and just really emphasized creating a huge stir with this big rollout of the book. And it worked. It became a New York Times bestseller. Again, it was one of the best-selling books in the world last year. And that's a little bit what Mansa Musa did too, right? He could have tried to make regular trips to Egypt or Mecca to make himself a known presence in the Islamic world and become familiarized with those circles and have them familiarized with him. But what he did was actually much more effective to make one big trip that was completely unforgettable. So that's one thing you can contemplate after this episode. We all need good habits, of course, that we need to do every day. We all need to have big goals that we slowly work towards over time. Those are both great, of course, very important. But in addition, you should think about what your Hajj will be. How can you be like Mansa Musa? What can you do that will demand attention and make yourself completely unforgettable? That does it for this episode of How to Take Over the World. Thank you for listening.